Take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 2. And in just a moment, we'll look at verses 22 through 24. Acts chapter 2, verses 22, 23, and 24. You know, the Bible is a book of miracles uh, from beginning to end, really. The very first verse in the entire Bible speaks of a great miracle we call creation. The Bible says in Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's all say that together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I learned in Hebrew class that that word for created is the Hebrew word bara, and it means to make something out of nothing. Now, you know, most of us are good at making a mess, <laughs> but some of us can make some things, but we always use ingredients to make something. Those ingredients pre-existed creation. That's not what Genesis 1-1 says. It says that God created everything in the universe out of nothing. Only God can do bara. Only God can create like that. It's a miracle of God. And I'll be frank with you. If you don't believe the first verse of the Bible, I doubt you'll believe the rest of the Bible. I believe that God created the heavens and the earth. Don't you? I believe that with all my heart. And then the Bible ends with two amazing miracles. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. And the last two verses are Revelation 22, verses 20 and 21. Verse 20 says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. That's Jesus saying that. And then John, the apostle who wrote the book of Revelation, responds to Jesus by saying, Amen, come Lord Jesus. So there you have the next to the last verse of the Bible talking about the miracle of the coming of Christ at any moment. Christ can come for his church. He doesn't have to wait for anything. No other prophecies have to be fulfilled for Jesus to come for his church. He described it in Luke 17 where he said two will be in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two will be in the bed. One will be taken. One will be left. Two will be working at the mill grinding. One will be taken. One will be left. What a miracle that is when our Lord comes back for his church at the coming of Christ, the rapture of the church. So that's a miracle next to the last verse of the Bible. But the last verse of the Bible talks about a great miracle, and that is somebody receiving the grace of God. In this Thanksgiving phrase, John simply says in Revelation 22, verse 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. He's talking about the grace of God that comes in salvation. How are we saved? Are we saved by doing good works? No. We're not saved by doing good works, not by works, but by grace. By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. If you could earn your salvation, you'd brag about it, you'd boast about it, but you can't do it because you can't be good enough to earn God's grace. That is a gift from Almighty God, and it's a miracle when God's grace comes upon somebody and turns them inside out, washes them with the blood and they are changed and radically changed for all eternity. Oh, thank the Lord for the miracles of God all throughout the Bible. But I would suggest to you that 
what we're talking about today is the greatest miracle of all. Jesus, we talked about his miraculous death last week, but the fact that Jesus Christ came out of the grave, that's the most glorious miracle in the Bible. And I want you to know that I believe that Jesus really is alive. <laughs> I'm not talking about a dead man. I haven't been preaching about a dead man for over 40 years, all right? I'm telling you, he's alive. He's in this room. He can save you. He will change you. God will change you, anybody. And this Easter morning, I want us to talk about the miracle of Jesus' resurrection. Look in your own Bible or follow on the screen, and let's see what Peter had to say in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and following. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. You put him to death, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. My son and I, my son's a preacher in Murfreesboro. He's been preaching for about a dozen years, pastoring for about a dozen years. And uh, we were talking, we pray every Sunday morning on the way in to church. We get up early and we go to the church. In fact, I called him and he beat me to church today. I was, I was uh, going to be here for the sunrise service and he was already at his church. And uh, we pray together. He said, what are you preaching on today? I said, well, I'm preaching somebody else's sermon. He said, Dad, you don't do that. What are you talking about? I said, it's Peter's. It's okay. It's okay. It's in the Bible. And it's a natural outline. Verse 22 talks about Jesus' miraculous life. Verse 23 talks about his miraculous death. But praise God, that's not all there is. Aren't you glad for the next verse? Verse 24, it talks about his miraculous resurrection. You know, you can't have a resurrection without a life. You can't have a life. You can't have a death, rather. You can't have a resurrection without a death. You can have a death without a life. So let's just look at those sequentially as Peter gave them in our text. Men of Israel, I'll read it one more time. Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men. You put him to death, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. Notice, first of all, Jesus' miraculous life. Look there in verse 22. Jesus' miraculous life. Peter said, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. Jesus was a man. You said, no, he was God. He was God. He was 100% God, 100% man. He was the 100% God man. Jesus was a person who had a miraculous life. 
Now, Peter is preaching the first gospel message following the day of Pentecost, following the coming of the Spirit. Christ had come to this earth, born of a virgin, free from a sinful nature, lived a sinless life, died an atoning death, rose bodily victoriously and eternally from the grave. And then he, for 40 days, he appeared to his disciples and he ascended back to heaven. And 10 days later, he sent the Holy Spirit. For 10 days, they prayed. They pleaded with God, oh God, in the upper room, they prayed, oh God, send your spirit upon us. Oh God, make us your witnesses. Jesus had said to them, the last thing he said was, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even the remotest part of the earth. And then he was ascended up to heaven. And so for 10 days, I wonder if we would have had the patience. They didn't know how long it would last, but they waited for 10 days. Every day they prayed. Every day they pleaded. Every day they trusted. And they said, oh God, send your spirit, send your spirit. And then on the day of Pentecost, 50 days from the day of Passover when Jesus had died, for 40 days after his resurrection, he had appeared to them. And then in 10 days they had prayed. So it was 50 days, put it together from Passover to Pentecost. On Pentecost, God says, now's the time. And he opened the windows of heaven and the fire of God, the spirit of God fell upon the believers and they were all of a sudden, they became the temples of the living God. All up to that time, the temple was down there in Jerusalem. God had dwelt in a building, if you will, in a little bitty place. But now, God is dwelling within redeemed humanity. And the fire of God is upon them. And they go out, they run out into the streets of Jerusalem. Because when you're filled with the Spirit, you can't avoid talking to people about Jesus and glorifying his name. And so they run into the streets and they start sharing in the dialects of these people, all of them Jews, but they've come from all over the world. And miraculously, they didn't know those languages, but they start speaking in the tongues, in the native languages of these people, the glorious deeds of the Lord, the, the glorious deeds of Jesus Christ. They're preaching the gospel and these people are hearing them in their own tongue. And they say, how in the world is this going on? You had some rogues that said, oh, well, they must be drunk. They must be intoxicated. Peter said, they're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. That's pretty good rationale right there, amen? You don't get drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning, Peter said. No. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, why did he, they say that they were drunk? You know, when somebody is intoxicated with alcohol, they walk differently. They talk differently. They think differently. They act differently. I know some people have done some crazy, stupid things when they got drunk that they never would have done if they had just left that stuff alone. And they lived to regret it to this day. So you're different when you drink alcohol. And you know what? You're different when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at me. You walk differently. You talk differently. You see differently. You think differently. You're a different person. And, you know, Paul picked up on that. He made that contrast in one of the greatest texts in the Bible about being filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5, 18. He says, don't get drunk with wine. That's dissipation. That's excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul understood that for us to be what we needed to be, we needed to be intoxicated, if you will, totally filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Well, Peter was preaching and they were saying, what is this? He said, oh, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. Jehovah is, is God. This is Joel. Joel, Joel, we say, 
in chapter 2, verse 28 and 29 of his prophecy. He said, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit. Peter said, that's what's going on here. And he's preaching the first gospel sermon following the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he preaches about the miraculous life of Jesus in this verse of ours, verse 22. He says, men of Israel, he's talking to the Jews that were there in Jerusalem for Passover and Pentecost. And he says, listen to these words. I've got something to say to you. This is significant. Jesus the Nazarene. Now that doesn't mean anything to us that much, but you know, Nazareth was a little bitty country town. Uh, when I was growing up, we call it a hick town, or you know, just a, a little bitty burg, if you will, a little bitty town out there. Doesn't that tell you something about God? Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, but he grew up in Nazareth, a little nowhere town. How many of you know that God does not do things the way we do things? Amen. Messiah would be raised in a little small town that was kind of, you know, looked down upon. In fact, so much so that one of the future disciples, Nathaniel, when Philip told him about Jesus and said he was from Nazareth, here's how Nathaniel replied in John 1, 46, Nazareth, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Come and see. So Peter spoke of Jesus' miraculous life. He was a man. He was attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs. That's how we know he is the Messiah. His miracles, his wonders, and his signs. They had seen Jesus, these listeners out there on the day of Pentecost, they knew that he was a miracle worker. Many of them probably were present when he fed the 5,000 men plus their families. Probably 16 to 17,000, 18,000 people just with a little boy's lunch few pieces of bread and fish. They knew about him raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. They knew about how he would just heal lepers. He would just at random, you know, not at random, but in the sovereign providence of God. He would just go and, and he would just heal lepers. He would heal lame people. He would heal the blind just anytime he wanted to. Jesus did that. Miracles, wonders, and signs. They were attesting to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. Other teachers had taught, other leaders had commanded, other kings had ruled, other people had healed even, I mean, and, and done miracles. Moses held up his rod, and yes, the Red Sea was parted, and, and yes, Elijah prayed, and the fire fell from heaven. But nobody did the kind of miracles that Jesus did just at any given time. Jesus Christ walked on the water whenever he wanted to, healed people whenever he wanted to, cast out demons. Demons didn't stand a chance. When Jesus showed up, they started screaming bloody murder. Oh, Jesus' miraculous life was unparalleled and unprecedented. One of the greatest miracles that he performed was raising Lazarus from the dead. When we go to Israel, we go to the little area of Bethany sometimes, we see that area. There were three elder siblings who were living together, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We don't know 
if they'd ever been married or not. Maybe they had, maybe they hadn't, but they were living together and they were all single. They were older in their, in their lives. And Jesus loved them. He would stop by and see them from time to time. But Jesus was out on a preaching tour and Jesus was sent a message from the house of Lazarus, Mary and Martha saying, come, the one whom you love, Lazarus, is sick. And Jesus didn't do what they asked him to do. You know what? <laughs> I think most of us have been there, done that. How many times has Jesus, how many of you would say, there, there's been a time or two, Jesus didn't do what I asked him to do. Anybody out there but me? Yeah. We don't like that. Mary and Martha didn't like it. You know why? He waited four days and Lazarus died. And they buried him. So finally after so with Jesus said, okay, now it's time to go. I want to tell you something. We think God is a little late sometimes. God is never late. God is never early. God is always right on time. God doesn't live by your time schedule. God lives by his time schedule. And he's always on time. And so Jesus shows up to Bethany. I'll just give it to you quickly. Martha comes out, and she had a habit of telling Jesus what to do. She had a habit of telling everybody what to do. Amen? It was a gift. I don't know if it's a spiritual gift, but it was a gift, all right? And so she says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. If you'd just done what I said, he'd be alive. And then Mary shows up. She's a lot softer, but she said the same thing. She said, you know, Lord, if you'd been here, you know, Martha's right. If you'd been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And so Jesus goes, he sees the tomb, and he weeps. Why did he weep? I believe he wept because he knows death wasn't supposed to be part of all this on this earth. When God created Adam and Eve, he put them in this lush, beautiful garden. And the Bible says, he said, this whole garden is yours. Man, you can just run free. You can be out here. Uh, you, you two guys just, just have a great time. Adam and Eve, just have a wonderful time. It's all yours. Everything's yours. Eat from any tree you want to eat from, anything you want. But there's one tree. Stay away from that tree. And what did they do? They did what you and I do. They do what every two-year-old does. Johnny, you can have all these toys, but this toy is not for you. Stay away from this toy. And Johnny says, oh, <laughs> I want that toy that I'm not supposed to have. We're drawn to forbidden fruit. We're drawn to that which God says, no, don't take that. We think God's holding out on us. And sin came into the world because they saw, they took, they ate, and sin rushed in. And Jesus was thinking all the way back to that first experience of sin. And what does sin lead to? Death. Death. And he's looking at a grave, and he says, that shouldn't be here. And he walks over. And as only Jesus can do, he says, Roll the stone away. 
And Martha, bless her heart, tells Jesus what to do again. She says, Lord, don't need to do that because he's been dead for several days because you wouldn't come. That's what she's saying. And he is dead in there. It's going to smell, all right? And this would be embarrassing. Please know. And the Lord said, did I not tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Roll the stone away. Then Jesus prayed. And then Jesus shouted. Lazarus, come forth. I heard a preacher say that years ago. He said if he hadn't said Lazarus, every dead person in the world would have come out of the grave. Amen. And guess what happened? Lazarus came forth. He had no option. Why? Because Jesus lived a miraculous life. Oh, his life was filled with miracles. And you can experience the miracle of Jesus today. He's still alive. He's still performing miracles a great miracle called salvation. If you'll repent of your sins, believe savingly in Jesus and receive him as Lord and Savior. The Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away, new things have come. Oh, thank God for his miraculous life. But then there's verse 23. We talked about it last week, his miraculous death. Look at verse 23, just for a moment. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed him to a cross. By the hands of godless men who put him to death. Who's he talking to? The Jewish people. He was saying, look, you guys are the ones that nailed Jesus to the cross. And don't, don't tell me just because the Romans did it, you're the ones that made the Romans do it. You kept on. You put Jesus on trial until Pilate had to come out there and take over. You did it through the hands of the Romans, but you did it. You did it. And you know what? We all did it. We all nailed Jesus to the cross. If you want to know who nailed him to the cross, go look in a mirror because he died for your sins. More about that momentarily. But Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and that he was put to death. This verse talks about, like we talked about last week, that it was a sovereign death. By that, I mean it was planned by a sovereign God even before Adam and Eve were created, even before man existed, even before man sinned, even before there was any sin, God knew what would happen. God had already predestined the death of Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God slain, now listen, from the foundation of the world. And so God knew that man was going to sin. And so before man sinned, God already planned the way to forgive man's sins. And that was through the cross. I heard a preacher say it this way. Before sin was in man's heart, salvation was in God's heart. In Jesus Christ, it was predestined that he would die for our sins. God planned it so. And then Jesus' death was not only a sovereign death, it was a sacred death. Jesus had no sin, but he died 
for our sin. He was the sinless Son of God. The only one never to sin was Jesus, not Mary. Mary sinned. Joseph sinned. We've all sinned. You've sinned. I've sinned. Everybody has. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We've all sinned, except Jesus. He was the sacred and is the sacred one, and his death was a sacred death because of his sinlessness. But it was also a substitutionary death. He died for the sins of all people. First John 2, 2 says, he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. He miraculously paid your sin debt when he died as a substitute on the cross. I was reading this week about the scapegoat. How many of you have ever heard the word scapegoat, all right? I said scapegoat in the last service, all right? And all I can see is a goat skating, all right? So that's, that's not what we're talking about, a scapegoat, all right? Well, where it comes from is the Old Testament and the priest who represented God to the people and the people to God. That's why Jesus is our great high priest. The Old Testament priest would take his hands, he would put his hands on the scapegoat, and it would symbolically say, I'm putting all the sins of the people on this goat, and they would send it out in the wilderness to die. When Jesus was on the cross, the Bible says that God placed the iniquity of us all upon him. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, but God laid the iniquity of us all upon Jesus, and Jesus bore your sin in his body on the cross so that you and I could become children of God and righteous in his sake. I want to say this to you. Jesus bore your sin on the cross. Every foul thing you've ever thought, every foul thing you've ever said, every rotten sin you've ever committed, even the smallest one, he paid your sin debt. He died as the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Oh, praise his name for his substitutionary miraculous death. And then it was a saving death. It brings salvation. There's nobody else that can give us salvation. Buddha didn't die for us. He can't give us salvation. Muhammad didn't die for us. He can't give us salvation. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And the Bible says in Romans 10, 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Oh, praise his name that he died on a cross to save us. Sir Isaac Watts published these famous lyrics years ago, back in 1707. When I surveyed the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and pour content on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain th th things which charm me most, I sacrifice them to your, his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Our thorns composed so rich a crown. And then my wife loves this last verse. Man, when she's singing that, I'm telling you, she's about to jump out of the room. This verse right here. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing so divine, demands my soul, my life, 
smile off. Aren't you glad today that Jesus died as a sacrifice for your sins on the cross? Can we just praise him for that right now? Can we just thank the Lord for the cross? Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> Love so amazing, so divine. Amen. Well, praise the Lord for his miraculous life. Praise the Lord for his miraculous death. But if that's all we've got, let's go home. There's nothing to it. If all we've got is a miraculous life and a bloody cross, if that's all I've got, I've got no good news for you. But I got some more news. <laughs> I'm not through, and neither is Peter, and neither is God. If Jesus is dead, nothing matters. If Jesus is dead, there's no reason to hope for heaven. If Jesus is dead, there's no forgiveness of sins. If Jesus is dead, we're just a bunch of animals and we're going to die and we're going to be dust forever and nothing to it, nothing real is meaningful, nothing is meaningful in this life, and nothing is waiting for us out there. If Jesus is dead, nothing matters. But if Jesus is alive, nothing else matters more than that. Jesus is alive, and nothing is more important than that. I'm grateful to say we can talk about Jesus' miraculous resurrection. Look at verse 24. But God, say that with me, but God. What a wonderful conjunction. <laughs> but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. Since it was impossible for him, for Jesus, to be held in its power. Now, people argue over whether or not the devil was excited about Jesus on the cross and excited about him in the tomb. I don't know. I don't know. The Bible doesn't really talk about it. I can tell you this, though. If anybody thought they could seal the Lord up with a stone, they were wrong. Jesus would not be defeated by death. God raised him up again. God did it. Do you remember back? when God created the first Adam. Remember that? Genesis 2, 7 says he created him out of dust. That's why men get so dirty, I guess. All right, I don't know. But, but we like dust, you know. We came out of dust. And, and so God created him out of dust, Adam. And then he breathed into that first Adam, what? The breath of what? Life. Jesus was the second Adam. Jesus came to do Right. The first Adam messed up. Jesus said, no, I'm going to come as the second Adam. I'm going to do it right. And when he died, the same God that breathed the breath of life into the first Adam and he became a living soul came to that tomb where Jesus, his son, lay and breathed into that lifeless body the breath of life. And Adam, number two, Jesus rose from the dead. God raised him from the dead. God 
pulled him out of the miry clay. Friday afternoon was going down time for Jesus. His dead body was laying in that grave to prove that he was dead. But I got news for you. It was going down time on Friday, but it was getting up time on Sunday. Amen? It was time to get out of the grave. It was time to rise from the dead. Jesus Christ is alive. God pulled him out of that miry clay, and he set his feet on a rock, put a, put a new spirit, put, put, breathed the breath of life into him. And it's because he wanted to conquer death forevermore. The Bible says in verse 24, but God raised him again from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death. Everybody in this room, if the rapture doesn't come, you're going to die. He said, I don't like to talk about that. Everybody in this room is going to die. He said, I don't like to talk about that. Everybody in this room is going to die. You know, it's only the people that are prepared to die that are ready to live. If you're not prepared to die, you're not really prepared to live. You're just existing. You don't know what life is. You're going to die. Unless Jesus comes back first, you're going to die. 2 Samuel 14, 14, For we will surely die, we're like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed for men to die once. For non-Christians, they die in agony. I've seen non-Christians die. It's not pretty. I've seen Christians die. I've seen non-Christians die. You know how non-Christians die? Oh, they brag, they boast. Some, some people here today, we might have people here today, say, well, I'm not a Christian and I'm not afraid of death. Wait till you get there. I've seen people brag and boast about how they don't believe in God and they get right at the point of death and they are petrified. They die in agony. Why? What does he say? He says, putting an end to the agony of death. That's what the resurrection does. It puts an end to the agony of death. You're going to die, but you don't have to die in agony. You don't have to die in fear. Now, I've seen Christians die. They die, not with agony, but they die with some apprehension sometimes. They don't know what it's going to be like. I mean, they say, you know, if I'm not conscious, Brother Steve, will my family around me, will, will, will I be able to hear them? And, and when I die, I mean, how does my soul leave my, and my spirit leave my body when I die? And, and what's going to happen, you know, when I get to heaven? Is Jesus going to be out front or on the other side of the gate? Is God the Father there? And will I recognize people? And when I get there, will I know what's going on on earth? And all these apprehensions, and they don't really, but they're not afraid to die. They just don't know what's happening because they've never died. And they ask me to tell them what's going on. And I say, I don't know. But I know if he'll carry you through life, he'll carry you through death. And you don't have to die in agony. Je look at me. Jesus bore your agony to take the agony out of your death. He died so you wouldn't have to die in agony. Apprehension maybe, but not agony. And then I love that last part, since it was impossible. Oh, I like that. For him to be held in its power. I can just see the grave saying, yeah, we got you now. They lay his body in there. Yeah, we got him. Yeah, we got him. 
Yeah, we got him. That stone saying, I got him. Soldiers out there, we got him. Jewish guys down here, we got him. How many of you know they don't got him? Amen, they don't got him. On that Easter morning, Jesus came bodily out of the grave. Jesus came victoriously out of the grave. Jesus came eternally out of the grave. Jesus Christ, his dead body, his heart started beating. Didn't you love that illustration at the first? That long line of a heartbeat, no heartbeat, and all of a sudden, boom, boom. Didn't you like that? That's what happened. Jesus started breathing again. Jesus came out of that grave. No grave could hold his body down. The sad thing is many preachers across America, some in Memphis, will try to demythologize the bodily resurrection of Jesus today. They'll say, well, it wasn't his body that rose. It was his teaching, his principles, his thoughts. I got news for you. It wasn't just his teachings that rose. The teacher rose. Jesus came bodily out of that grave. And he came victoriously. He had the keys to death and hell and the grave in his hands. And he came everlastingly, eternally. He would never die again. Other people had been raised from the dead like Lazarus, but Lazarus died physically again. But when Jesus came out, he was the first fruits of those who would never die again. And there's a long train of us now. We've been following him. We're, he's the first fruits, but we're in the field too. And one of these days we're going to die but we're not going to die. Our soul and spirit are going to be with the Lord and then our body's going to be put in a grave and then on resurrection day, it's coming out of that grave, reunited with the soul and spirit and a brand new body. How many of you are thanking God for a brand new body? Praise God on that. And we're going to live forever with Jesus Christ who is raised from the dead. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Give him praise right now. What? 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 What do we have? If we don't have that, what do we have? Man, Paul just went off on it in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, but tell me this. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised either. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then all of our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. We apostles would all be lying about God, for we've said that God raised Christ from the dead. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Brethren, I want to tell you something. There's nothing more powerful in the world to preach about than what we're talking about today. There's no better message than what we're talking about today. There's no greater miracle than this today. Are you lost? Christ has been raised from the dead. Are you afraid? Are you fearful of life? Christ has been raised from the dead. All fear is gone. Are you angry? Are you mad at somebody? Are you having unforgiveness in your heart? Christ has been raised from the dead. He can help you out of that pit of unforgiveness. Are you confused? Are you not knowing what to do? Are you anxious about life? Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ, if you're weary, if you're tired, if, if you're just 
tired of, don't know if you can keep on keeping on. Listen to me. You can. Let me tell you why. Christ has been raised from the dead. Are you about to die? Then get ready. Christ has been raised from the dead, and you can be raised from the dead too. Christ has been raised from the dead, and that means nothing else can come your way to take you down. Oh, praise his holy name. <laughs> How in the world you can not get excited about this and get excited about something else, I don't understand. This last week, I drove up to Dyersburg. I love my hometown. I went to school there, K through 12. My daddy and mother, uh, they've been dead. Daddy's been dead for 20 years, and mom's been dead for 10 years. I went to their graveside and put on some new flowers. I do that two or three times a year, and uh, I always cry. I don't cry wondering where they are. I know where my mom and dad are. I know where they are. They're with the Lord. They were both depression children. They weren't depressed. They, worked, they, they, they didn't have time to be depressed. They worked all the time. Neither one of them graduated from high school. They had to quit school early. We were out rabbit hunting one day. Daddy said, I want to show you something. He took me to an old dilapidated house. Half of it had a dirt floor. Just a little bitty house. He said, this is where I grew up. Abject poverty, both of them. Daddy went off in the Navy in World War II. Came back and married mom. They stayed married almost 60 years. Daddy got Alzheimer's and died. Ten years later, my mother died. And I went to their tomb, and it always takes my breath. You know, my wife was holding my mother's hand when she died. I hear sometimes about people not getting along with their in-laws. Could I just lovingly say, stop that? Whatever's between you and anybody else, get it right. Deathbeds are coming. You don't want to die with that between you. I love my in-laws. They're both still living. But when I go there, I always pray. And when I leave, I always thank God that that grave's not going to have the final say. My mother and dad are with the Lord right now. They're spirit and soul with God right now. But when Jesus comes back in the rapture, we place them in that grave, in that dirt. But that dirt is coming off. And that body's coming out. It's going to be reunited with their soul and spirit, with the Lord, a brand new body. Ain't no grave going to hold those bodies down. And it's all because Jesus not only died on the cross for our sins, but walked into the grave, was buried, but then he rose, never to die again. 